Hello, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I am your host, Austin Glidden, and of course, as always, we are brought to you today by the Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film. You know, they never shut up about movies over there, and Joe's writing stuff, because he never shuts up either, so <laughs> says the guy who never lets him talk. But anyways, um, you can also uh, meet us on... What? You can also hit us up on social media. Uh, at Medium Cool Pod, that is Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us with your feedback, any comments, questions, concerns at uh, Medium Cool Pod at gmail.com. Um, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time talking. I did not eat Taco Bell and drink eggnog this week, so I should be good to go. I don't really know what's going on other than um, I made an absolutely um, like intimidating list of movie marathons. I was talking about this last time, and I really want to do these movie marathons, but uh, I have this uh, kind of coffee table book. Uh, I think his name's Steven Schneider. And uh, he, he made this book called 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. Now, before I get into it, go check this book out. Regardless of how many movies you've seen and, and how far into your cinematic journey you are or how young you are in it, um, either way, go to you know Amazon or, or wherever uh, used books are sold, okay? And, 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 and look up online and see if you can find any, any version, any edition of Steven Schneider's 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I bought mine back in like 2012, um, and I bought another one, I think, in like 2015 or something, um, or actually more recently, probably 2017 or something. I bought them on Amazon used, and I'm not kidding. You can get this book of 1001 Movies. This thing's like two and a half phone books thick, okay? Tons and tons of pages for like three bucks, Seriously, it's crazy. Now, with you know, if you have shipping or some, either way, it's like less than ten bucks. It's crazy. So go get one of these. They're very cool. They also make these smaller books called One Hundred and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and it's all specifically in genre, which is pretty cool. I have several of those. Um, but anyways, my point is, you know, I'm I'm looking through this One Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die just to kind of get marathon ideas, and I decided once I finished all my movie marathons in this big spreadsheet. I mean, there are thousands of movies on this thing. And I decided I'm going to put every single title in 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die that is not already in an existing marathon. So every other kind of scrap, all the scraps, right? Any other stragglers go on there. Well, there are 801 movies. And and mind you, I didn't look through the book. I looked at a list that had every movie in those books from like every uh, edition. So they're like 1,400 pages, you know? So I'd seen about 600 of them, um, but it's a lot of like really random shit too. So it's not just, you know, see Indiana Jones and E.T. and Jaws and then, you know, also watch Citizen Kane, like, I don't know, or Hitchcock movies and John Ford and all these. Yes, those exist, but there's just a bunch of random stuff starting all the way back to A Trip to the Moon in 1902 and going all the way up to the present year that the book or the, the, maybe the prior year. Either way, wherever the edition is, whether it's 2015, 16, 17, 18, whatever it is, um, they have movies all the way up to that. So it's, it's pretty current if you get the most current edition. Now, the most current edition is going to be a lot more expensive. But if you get an, a used, like an older edition, especially a used version, I've bought two copies of this before. One was a gift. One was for myself. 
and they've always been in perfect condition, and uh, I don't know, they're great. So anyways, the point is, I have all of these movies. So I'm going through, the fourth movie, okay, is Les Vampires, okay, Les Vampires. Um, but anyways, Les Vampires, it's from like 1915, all right, it's like seven hours long, <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, I'm never gonna get through this, like I'm never gonna get through this list, but I'm, I'm bound and determined to. So uh, my goal is uh, once I can get to a point, because especially with holidays coming up and, you know, I'm busy at work and I just started playing music again, like I actually picked my guitar up and started jamming, which is pretty cool. So I'm trying to focus on a few other things. But once I get kind of those things out of my system a bit, I'm going to start watching some of these movies and I'm going to try to just I don't know if I'll go purely chronological because I'm pretty eager to see a few others down the line. Excuse me. But um, yeah, I'll be excited. I'll let you guys know what I'm watching on social media, so you can hit me up on Twitter, at Austin Glidden, that is at Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N-G-L-I-D-D-E-N, at Austin Glidden, go check me out, and you can uh, hit me up, I'm going to try to keep that up, I'm also going to try to keep up some sort of log and letterboxed, we'll see if I keep that up, I don't know, I'm not great at keeping letterboxed up, but I always go back eventually and fill it out. Long story shorter, I guess, because it's already long. The point is, you should check out these 1001 Movies Before You Die books. You should grab an edition and try to work through it yourself. I mean, I think this is a great way to broaden your cinematic horizons. Now, I'm going to out myself here. I'm not a huge John Ford, John Wayne fan, okay? I I appreciate this filmmaker. I think John Ford is actually a really uh, skilled filmmaker. Go watch The Searchers, and you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, he has great skill. It's just not a skill that I particularly um, gravitate toward, okay? So I can acknowledge that he's a skilled filmmaker, even though he does not really entertain me all that much. And so The Searchers is probably the closest thing, but it's he. I feel like he never lets uh, his audience like feel feelings. Like in, in The Searchers, for example, and I don't mean to go on a tangent, but I am already. Um, but in The Searchers, you know, John Wayne is looking for his nieces, and he goes into this, like, cave. It's been a while since I've seen it, but if you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about, and if not, you won't know anyways. So anyways, he goes down into this cave, and, and the camera stays out in the world, okay? It does not follow him. And then eventually he comes back out with a look of complete distress and despair on his face, and, and, and it's masterfully done because back in, what was it, 56? Back in 1956, they couldn't show you the type of violence that he had clearly experienced. So when he comes out of this cave, John Wayne, his face tells you that this is a gruesome murder at the hands of these evil Native Americans because back then there were tons of super racist, uh, you know, quote-unquote Cowboys and Indians movies, and this is one of them. But that aside, you know, um, these Native Americans killed his kid niece this isn't like a teenager this is a kid okay and I just remember that being so powerful but here's the thing shortly after that they they cut to like a complete comedy scene and those are the things that just really pull me out of it I just I can only appreciate uh filmmakers like John Ford uh for their skill I don't get much entertainment out of their movies. Now, I say all of that to say this. When I start working through this 1001 movies, all these scraps, these extra movies that weren't in marathons, um, I'm going to have to sit through John Ford movies. But I'm actually looking super forward to it. Not so much those films in particular. But I'm looking forward to getting those kind of, getting past those 
and having an opinion on them and learning more about John Ford's style, right? And again, broadening my cinematic horizons. And I hope you guys will join me. I mean, this is a really great way to learn you know, what your standards of film are and and what entertains you truly. You might think you know now, but the more you watch, the more you learn about yourself. And so I strongly encourage you to go out there, get wild, watch some crazy movies. You know, uh, a while back, Criterion, the Criterion Channel had a German expressionism, uh, uh, like, what is it, like a feature or whatever, where they had a bunch of German expressionism movies. Most of them were silent. And I got my buddy, uh, Brandon Thrasher, shout out. He's probably going to text me when he hears this. But <laughs> but anyways, uh, my buddy actually watched them with me. He didn't have the Criterion channel, but he found them on YouTube. And he was just like watching a few of these. I think he even watched one extra one long more than I did. Um, but we had a great time with it. And even though they may not have wowed him as they did, some of them were really cool. Like I, I like Dr. Mabuse, the gambler. I thought that was really great, but you know, you have a movie like destiny, the Fritz, Fritz Lang movie. And, uh, both of us were a bit underwhelmed in terms of like what we know Fritz Lang is like what we expect of him. Um, but I was, you know, I, I was really impressed with it being, like so early in his career and and the things he did with it. And I would have never seen that had they not had that on the Criterion channel. I probably would have eventually, but what I mean is um, I would never have made it a priority, right? But it was there and I finally watched it and I was really excited about it. And so I, I don't know, I, I just, I love when people explore and find out more about themselves because I know that when Thrasher was watching, he was watching stuff that he probably would have never watched had I not asked him to watch it with me. Now, mind you, when I say watch them with me, uh, this was during the pandemic, so we were just watching them at our houses separately, and then we would, like, talk about it later. Very fun thing for you to do, and stay safe. Wear your masks when you go out. When you get home, watch a movie, tell your friend to watch it, and then call each other and be like, yo, that movie sucked, or dude, that movie ruled, or anywhere in between. It's great. All right, well, that's 10 minutes you'll never get back. So anyways, like I said, uh, please go check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It is Medium Cool Pod. Just search for us. We'll be there. Today's episode, though, now that I've went on for 10 minutes, today's episode, I have an extended conversation with somebody that we talked to for about 15 minutes a few weeks ago. His name's Jeff Rhoda, and he did uh, a movie called 18 to Party. And at the time, it was coming out in a limited release well, today it is released wide. You can find it on Amazon, you can find it on iTunes, all the th- all the things, all the places online. You can go find it and you can go watch it. I'm sure it's rentable, but it's also purchasable. Um, I love this movie. You know, I know some people have given it mixed reviews, but I personally love it because I love dialogue and I love humans. And I feel like this movie, uh, although it is very stylized at times, I think it really gets to deeper human issues. And I hope that this conversation enlightens you a bit. Uh, you know, we, we talk about some really cool stuff that I that I hope you'll you'll stick through because we don't just talk about 18 to Party. I mean, I talk a lot about, you know, Jeff's life and, and uh, you know, how he got into filmmaking. And we talk about his friendship with Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and uh, you know, uh, Matt Stone. Yeah, Matt Stone and... Trey Parker, I think I said their names right. I don't know why I'm like totally second guessing myself. Uh, but anyways, the South Park guys um, and all of that stuff. It's it's really cool. So I hope you stick around for that. It's been uh, really really wonderful to kind of to build um, uh, what we'll call an online friendship. We'll say that uh, we like each other's stuff, and we had a great conversation this time. And I hope we have another one 
and we stay in touch. So, uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Jeff Rhoda. Next week is uh, December 8th, and we are going, that is, uh, I, I think uh, um, John Cassavetti's birthday is December 9th, but we're going to start our Cassavetti's Marathon. Um, so I will tell you more about that after this conversation, but right now, let's go hear what Jeff has to say. I was curious about this. I didn't get to talk to you about this last time. What's your music background? Because I can tell even watching the movie and stuff that you seem like a music guy. Do I have you pinned down there? I mean, you know, I, I guess I guess more so than I than I think I am. You know what I mean? Like I uh, I certainly from from you know putting the movie together, I you know I I fell into a I fell into a lot of rabbit holes like late at night, you know, on sort of YouTube until four in the morning, you know, for you know for seemingly months and months, you know, it's just kind of fun <laughs> to discover things and know that you know, and sometimes. You know, we had a, it's funny, I think a Talk House uh, is a, um, it's like an online magazine and, and uh, I wrote a piece for them a couple weeks ago about my, uh, about how I was able to get Mick Jones from The Clash, you know, to give me some music that I found of his, you know, and finding that music, um, it's such a rock and roll story because it was something I found just from like, you know, searching on YouTube basically for hours on end and found this, you know, he had a band after, right after he left the clash, like later that day. And uh, they made a uh, demo, you know, he and a few other people. And the demo actually became a demo for what became a band called Big Audio Dynamite, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but it was just this kind of weird like demo of like funk and ska and hip hop and, 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 <laughs> and punk and like just weird with saxophones and weird stuff. And I was just like, gosh, and, 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 it, and it was from 1984 too. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, um, so I was like, you know, God, I would just love to have this music because I think, you know, you've seen the movie. And so the music coming out of the club, you know, I didn't want it to be songs, you know what I mean? I didn't want it to, or, or a band you know, setting up or something. I just wanted it to have a, you know, sort of almost like a theatrical element of mystery, you know, as sure. to like what it is. And so it was just this stuff coming out. And, and so I wrote this piece for TalkHouse that talks about that and how I met um, Sue Jacobs, who's this, who's a giant music supervisor, you know, and, and one of the biggest, biggest in the, in, in the business really. And, uh, uh, through one of the producers and a friend and a mutual friend of mine, you know, she read the script and she really loved it. And we met and, um, we just really got on really well. And, and again, like this was a tiny movie. There's nothing to be, there was nothing to be gained in a way by it, you know, in any other way other than to just do this thing. And, and that's kind of what we all did. And then she came on board and she made so much happen, um, with such a limited budget. Um, you know, she, I mean, she got a, uh, you know, a Velvet Underground song that's never been in a movie before, you know. Yeah, and, which is uh, crazy. Like, when I heard crazy. that, I was like, what the fuck? Crazy. <laughs> it's totally crazy. You yeah. know, totally crazy. And, 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 that, and I had nothing to do with that song. Like, I had another song in there. It's kind of the interlude of the film. And I had another song in there that I was, like, kicking and screaming for. Um, it was actually a song, I, I can tell you, it was a song called The Young Parisians by Adam Ant. Mm. And uh, I think it was Adam and the Ants or something. 
And it's just this like really great song. And, and, uh, um, and it was in there for a while. We didn't even approach it. I think we, we didn't get far, that far down the road to start like inquiring about that song. And, you know, Sue just like called me in one day and she had put the hers, this Velvet Underground song in there. And, and at first it's so jarring because it's completely different. Everything about it is different than the one in. You're like, oh my God, this is so different. And after a while, it just, I could just recognize how it completely changed the, the mood and the tone of the entire movie in a way, you know? And, yeah. and she was able, and with her relationship with his estate, Laurie Anderson, you know, she was able to, to get these things. And, uh, um, she just, I mean, she just, she just made incredible things happen because nothing is cheap. That's basically what the talk house piece is about. I didn't know anything about music oh, in, in movie. Dude, you know? it's, it is brutal. Like that's just to interrupt you real quick. I'm sorry, but sure, that, that is, that is the hardest thing I've found for people to do is if they want like proper copyrighted music, that's not original or, or that they don't have rights to, but they're trying to get the rights to stuff. That is what, tends to put the kibosh on whatever whatever they're working on you know Galen Ross like I was just saying when we talked to her she has like four documentaries or something in like just on the shelf because they're still trying to get the rights like like for, for example she did one on a musician I'm spacing the name of the musician right now I feel bad but um but they can't get any of the rights to that music yet. Like there's still, and she's had this for like over a decade. So you know so what I mean? So, so it's a documentary on the actual artist. Yes. And they can't, oh, that's such a, that's a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, and, and I could have something wrong, but I do know that she has multiple, we were talking about it and I would bring up a documentary that was on IMDb or something. And uh, IMDb has all the wrong dates. So I just kept saying the wrong order, sure. but still like, uh, you know, I'd bring up a documentary and she'd just be like, yeah, we would love to put this out, but we're still trying to get the rights to these songs. You know, she had footage from like 19, the 1980s or something mm -hmm. that she's been trying to make a movie kind of almost ever since, you know, she kind of went back to it, but there's like sure. music or there are like different things in it that she can't quite you know, get that going. So dude, I'm with you, man. Like with rights, I've seen people go through it. It's really tricky and super expensive. It's super expensive. And like, yeah, we had a, like, I mean, we had a low budget movie, you know, and very low budget. Movie. And even when it's, you know, it's funny. Cause I, I, the mute, the money, the, the finances around music and film is, is, uh, it was so, surprising to me because I think I just come from a background of like scarcity or something and so when you have like and when that's your relationship with money and finances the world doesn't really make sense in a way and I think with music it it uh it was kind of like this idea of like oh if if we use a lesser known band but still a known band like for instance like I think in the in the uh in the movie, the outro song is from The Alarm, you know? Mm -hmm. The Alarm I knew as a kid, you know, I'm older than you, uh, but I knew The Alarm as a kid and they weren't you too, you know what I mean? They weren't, <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, it's, and so it's like, okay, that should be, that should be fine, you know? And then you start in the inquiry and there's uh, publishing rights and then there's master rights. And, you know, sometimes the artist has no say at all as to what can happen with their music. None, yeah. you know? And sometimes they do, and sometimes it's a pain in the ass, and sometimes it's, 
there's more than one person or it's like, I imagine like trying to get a song from the Smiths in your movie, considering like Johnny Marr and Morrissey don't talk ever. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like you know what I mean? It's just like good luck. And, and it's funny when like you, it's, I'm so enamored and I'm such like a, uh, uh, I'm so starstruck by rock and rollers, you know? And it's amazing once you get into it because you start seeing those relationships front and center where you're just like, wait a second, this person won't talk to this person, so I can't have the song, you yeah. know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so, but but the, but the logic around it was like, oh, well, this song from The Alarm, because it's like, it's not a huge hit of theirs, you know? Maybe that'll be like really, really cheap. And then you go to one of like, it feels like a monopoly. I mean, there's like Universal Music and Warner Music and like, I don't know, maybe another. That's what it feels <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so they'll come back to you and say, okay, that's 80 grand or something. And you're like, well, wait a second, but no one's ever going to use this song and no one's used it. it. Isn't five grand better than nothing? And to them, no, that's not better than nothing. You know, I know. because, because it, it devalues the big ones, the big people, you know, and and it just, I, I just never knew that logic, you know, it's just, it's like little kid logic to be like, oh, smaller, less money. And some money is better than no money. But, you know, Warner Music doesn't share that, that philosophy. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I'm sorry, my dog's just going, I don't know what she's doing. She's just, she's <laughs> I can't hear a few little noises. And I was wondering what that was. That's funny. <laughs> hey, Ramona, hey. She's just dragging her butt around, and I know it probably, it probably means something on TV, but I just, I just, of course, it just happened now. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, and so the so it was an adventure. I knew going into a movie that was set in 1984, I wasn't going to get those big 80s songs anyway. But I didn't want them. Like the last thing I wanted was to try to get a a, a song by like the Human League or something. You know what I mean? And and um, that kind of thing that people have heard again and again and again, and it just didn't match what the movie is. The movie's, you know, the movie is like this sort of low concept, high concept movie in a way, and it just wouldn't fit. And so I just like learning stuff and I like learning about, you know, bands and artists and things I didn't, never heard of. Like there's a song by Orange Juice in this in the movie um, called Blue Boy, and I had never heard of Orange Juice before. And you know, there's a Scottish band from like the late '70s, early '80s, and and they're like the they were like the pioneers of indie rock in a lot of ways. And they were so good, and I'd never heard of them. And I wanted this song, and it actually ended. Edwin Collins is his name, this like wonderful guy who was the lead singer and songwriter, and he allowed us to use it. A lot of people were just like cool, you know, and yeah. um, and it didn't cost nothing, you know, but you know, when you're getting music from like, from Mick Jones, I mean, it's, it's like the clash is a big band, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so his generosity, what was interesting about the music that it's a, it's a funny story because it's such a rock and roll story is that, you know, I like Sue got in touch with her manager and it's all really all relationships in the su music supervision world, you know, and Sue sure. had worked with the clash's manager or she actually was just friends with the Clash's manager in the eighties. They used to run around together in New York city, you know? Um, and she was like, Oh, I haven't spoken to her in a long time. And I know her, I know, you know, I know Mick's ex-wife and they have a good relationship. Let me just do what I do, you know? And, um, and so she got back to me and she said, you know, I talked to her and she talked to Mick and 
you know, they seem really kind of open to it, but Mick doesn't know what music you're talking about. <laughs> and so, and so, I, so we had to send him his own music. That's so and awesome. And so he could be like, oh, that, you know. And then, and then I think fairly recently we had, you know, because you can clear it for festivals, which we did, but once you start going into a release, it's, a, it's like revisiting the entire process again. Wait, how know? so? Wait, what's the difference between being in like the festival circuit and then like releasing it to the public? It's a different, it's a different cost bracket, you know? It could be X amount of, I'm, I'm making numbers up, but it could cost five grand for, you know, the festival circuit. And if it goes on and once, and, and in order to license it for a release or a theatrical release or streaming release, it could cost $20,000 or $10,000. I didn't know that. That's wild. Well, a long time ago there, you didn't have to pay anything, I think, for festival fees. I mean, we're talking like 25 years ago. You know what I mean? I'm sure it's tied to something like, you know, like uh, internet piracy or like, or, you know, like the whole music thing has completely changed where a lot of bands don't make money on records anymore. Yeah. Um, but they'll make money on their merch or like tours because they'll put they'll yeah. they'll charge more for those things to supplement what maybe 25 years ago they would have made in CD Absolutely. sales. So I'm assuming Absolutely. this is a big way that Warner Brothers and all, all those big companies essentially sure. get that money, wouldn't you say? No, absolutely. And and uh, you know sometimes um, there were a couple songs. There was a song by I, I remember clearly. There's a song by no no. What are you doing? Um, there was a song by this band called The Skids, which I had never heard of before, too. This, like, post-punk band. This, all, the, all these bands were, like, English bands, mostly. And, uh, um, and they had this great song called Into the Valley. And, you know, I was like, I really want this for this. And I was like, there's no way we're not going to be able to get it. Do you know what I mean? Because whatever. And then all of a sudden, you just start getting the info, and it's like Warner Music. And apparently that song in the U.K. Um, gets used in commercials a lot. You know, oh, okay. you know, and, and it just changed. And then, and there was just, it was just an impossibility. It's like, we can't afford this song that apparently other people are aware of and, and they use commercially. And, and, uh, um, so, you know, so learning just a lot about bands and, and, and we had to take a lot of music out, not a lot of me. Yeah. We had to take a lot of music out that we wanted and just weren't able to clear, but, you know, using these indie labels, they have a lot of wonderful bands, you know, these indie labels and a lot of them are really, you know, want that kind of exposure or the indie label just wants to make, even if it's, it's a business, you know, so a small indie label can have music from the 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up to now. And it can just cost a lot less, you know, and, and, and there are some wonderful, wonderful artists on those, at those places. And so, you know, I mean, a limited budget or, or near nothing budget limits your options. And sometimes that's when the best stuff happens. It's like, so, we weren't shopping around for big hits from the 80s. I wouldn't have anyway. You know, if, if there yeah. was, if we had millions of dollars, I wouldn't have done that anyway. You know, it just, yeah. just didn't interest me. But it was cool, you know. And, and, and the last part about Mick Jones, the generosity of him, it's like right before the movie, I guess a couple months ago, um, there, uh, uh, there was a, twi- there, was a uh, there was a small hiccup because another writer, another, another musician that worked with him on that music, was uh, got 25% of, of, was basically, I guess that was their arrangement, was mixed 75 and this guy 25. And they called us and, and they just said that they would take care of it, the 25, you know? And yeah. so it was just really generous and really cool. So the whole experience, again, and, and Sue Jacobs, in terms of the artistry of music, I didn't know anything about music in movies. And, 
and what it's for and how it can change, you know, narrative and how it can like work out of a character or go into a character. Just like, I mean, it is, it is such a craft. And, and uh, so it was really, it was like a, again, it was like a masterclass to be able to like, you know, sit next to someone who knew how to do this, you know, yeah. the highest, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, two things about music, like, uh, one thing that I, I like, yeah, why would you spend millions of dollars on music when there are so many awesome warranted bands? Uh, like, you know, so I've, I've played music for over 20 years, you know, and, and, uh, I've kind of played all different levels, never been like in a huge band or anything, but I've played all different genres, like all different kinds of things. And I know a ton of people from that. And if I ever made a movie, okay, <laughs> I would probably cherry pick from all these people I know because, like, some sure. of that local, not even, well, not local, but some of that, like, regional or or indie stuff, um, unless I was looking for period music or, uh, like, something, you know, I don't know, if I was making some action movie and I wanted some kick-ass Queen song or something to play, you know, like whatever the movies do, you know, um, I could see that. But, there, yeah, it's crazy to me that you'd pay $80,000 for a song that, you know, not a ton of people would even recognize, but that, like, you could get something for so much cheaper that it's probably going to be so much better because my second point is what you just pointed out. Music is, like, so important, or, or the lack thereof, right, in storytelling, like you said, and um, whenever I, often I would listen to a song. I remember the first time I heard, let me think, I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Kid A from Radiohead. I don't know if you're a Radiohead fan, but um, I heard Kid A, and I remember listening to that full record the first time. And this is before I really got into film. But for some reason, listening to that gave me images in my head of scenes that would be in a movie. And I just went home, opened up like WordPad and just started like writing like a movie, (laughs) which was it really? No, but it was set to the soundtrack of like five different songs on that record. Right. Because it inspired something in me. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know, man, I I think music is like super, super important. And I love the choices that you got. I think it's awesome that you got the Velvet Underground song and. Um, that Mick yeah, Jones helped wow. out. Uh, it's really awesome. But like, how did that work though? It, did the music, like, were you listening to music when you were writing this or did you kind of have this idea already uh, to kind of go and music kind of came afterwards to fill in some of the the moods or some of the stuff that you were going for? It's funny. I, I you know, anything I've written in the past, I don't know if I, you know, I think probably other screenwriters do this. Like, music sets up so much and every movie starts with music. Every movie starts with a cue, you know, and, um, and it really sets the tone so much or it's, or just like, it's telling the audience like what they can expect in a way or like, and so every time I write a movie, it's like the, the intro, whether there's this, uh, whether they're, uh, opening credits or whatever it is, um, there were end credits on my film, but there was a little prologue of, of, of this thing that I wanted. And I wanted to open the movie with these opening bars of a big, big audio dynamite song called uh, the bottom line. And, uh, um, and we were able to get that. And so I like, maybe the first thing I ever thought was like starting something with that, you know? And I was like, that will set everything up perfectly, you know? Yeah. And, 
you know, there were a lot of like, it's, it's in the film, there's a lot of space in between. There's a few scenes where there's kind of like a time lapse and we use that time to put a song in. And, and, um, and that part was like fun. Cause I would just, I just emailed like a bunch of my friends who were just music geeks, you know, and, and, you know, and music geeks love to, you know, get asked to put input, you know, for yeah. a project. And I said, <laughs> Hey guys. And I just said, look, man, I'm making this movie that's, you know, takes place in 1984. And what music did you like that wasn't big music, you know? And I mean, I got like inundated with ideas and it's funny because like one of my friends worked at a record store. Um, this is like back in the, in the eighties, you know, gold. and yeah. used to get all of these, uh, you know, that's when the, uh, the record companies would put out these compilations of like, hey, these are all our artists, like artists you would know and some you didn't know or some that they expected you would know and maybe you didn't. And like, but for, for, but for music geeks, they're like, oh, you have to hear this band or this and this. And they were just sending me so much. And, and I just like, again, like I would stay up really, really late and just write down songs and listen to them and you know, sort of right next to them, what I thought or what was cool or what had a cool hook or what had a cool intro or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was kind of it, man. That, that was, that was kind of it. And again, like there were a few bigger things that I wanted. Um, and, but I knew that they were going to be, it was going to be sparing anyway, you know, and, and, uh, that I wouldn't be, and there was a chance that I wouldn't be able to get anything, you know, I did not know how this worked at all. And, and so, you know, so I think it does set the tone in a lot of ways for what you're about to write. And I, you know, I'm trying to think now of like screenplays that I've written, um, you know, whether they're good or not good is sort of not important, but they all start with some kind of like, some kind of weird song. And it's always just a song that I like or something like really personal, you know, and, and uh, um, I, you know, one song, I wrote this teen comedy years ago and, and, uh, and, and, and the intro song was this like weird song by, from like 1978 by Van Halen, you know, and that was just something that like when I was a teenager, I thought was cool and you would never hear it. It's in the teen comedy. You just never would. And, but I just liked it. You know what I mean? I yeah. just liked it and, and it can give you a little swagger and it's fun because it's all fantasy anyway. You know I mean? Like you said, it's like, why spend millions of dollars? There's a lot of reasons to spend millions of dollars and, and, there's familiarity, there's anything to bring in an audience or to make something hook. I mean, that's why every trailer that comes on for an action movie, it's an ACDC song, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just like, oh, that, that, and you're like, oh, they won't do that again, will they? And it's like, yeah, it's like Hell's Bells all of a sudden is on yeah. again. Like, and you're like, I get it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, must, it must cost an enormous amount of money to get those songs. And but that's the whole thing, you know, it's, yeah, it have, makes, it makes me wonder if it's just to like sell soundtracks or something, you know, or like, you know, I mean, cause I don't know what the, I, it's funny. Cause I don't know what the soundtrack world looks like now. Anyway. Yeah, it's me like, neither. you know, do, I mean, I just don't know. It's, it's a bummer because the soundtracks used to be cool. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And people yeah. still buy them on vinyl now. Like, uh, like I, uh, I have a buddy who owns a record store and every time I'd go in, he'd be showcasing some, you know, like, hey, dude, we got the soundtrack from this random TV show or something, you know, like, and it's yeah. just like people collect this still, and that's cool. Um, but like, that's like, I have, I think I have 
I mean, I have a few soundtracks. Like, I love the movie Boogie Nights, and I love, you know, like, the entire soundtrack, you know, or, or like, you know, Dazed and Confused. You know, like, there are just some bangers that when you hear these songs, even if I didn't like them before the movie, the movie has sure. now given them a context that when I listen to them, like, like now every time I listen to Velvet Underground, whether it's that song or not, I'm probably going to remember these kids behind this club. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, I'll put an image with those things. And, uh, but other than that, you know, I, I have like the Blade Runner soundtrack because someone gave it to me for free, but like, I'll probably never listen to that, you know? Um, but anyways, well, I, think, go ahead. I think, I think with, and well, it sounds like you're pretty, you're more visual than maybe you think, or you're more, you know what I mean? Then, because I think a lot of, you know, I could, sometimes it's a fun conversation to have. It's like, Oh, what's the most memorable music cue? in a movie, like what's really memorable to you. And it's, it's the weirdest things happen. Like for me, for me, it's like, uh, uh, in, um, silence of the lambs, it's uh, American girl by Tom Petty. When the young girl is like driving down the road. And I just like, always like every time I hear American girl, I think of that, you know what I mean? And, and it's, there's so many movies and that's kind of what, that's kind of what happens. It's been my experience, you know, with so many films. And, and it's interesting that usually other people feel the same about, you know, like you said, like Boogie Nights, like you may think of Boogie Nights if you hear one of those songs or not, or have some association with it. I'm, you know, nothing, of course, nothing comes to mind now, but um, it's a cool conversation to have with your friends, you know, oh, say yeah. like the most memorable one, you like, know? Yeah. Growing um, up, I was like a hardcore. Like Garrett Clapton, like uh, Layla by Clapton and Goodfellas, you know, it's oh, like, yeah. you know, it's like you can't hear Layla without thinking of that, you know, sort of tracking shot or do- whatever it is, that gorgeous shot where the guy's frozen in, a, in the back of a truck or whatever it is. And uh, it's just, that's, I, I'll never not see that when I hear that song, you know? Oh yeah. And the, it just, I just think this, it's such a special thing. <laughs> I don't know, whenever like someone can actually take a song and it kind of becomes that movies, you know, I feel like um, Tarantino is pretty famous for taking kind of songs. A lot of people don't think of as much and throwing them in. Yeah. And then they have like a life of their own or even yeah. in like reservoir dogs, whenever Michael Madsen's cutting the ear off, stuck, but then, stuck, stuck in the middle. I yeah. mean, that song, why I mean, would you ever think of it? like that it's the juxtaposition of something horrific with like this song that would never take on that kind mm-hmm. of meaning right um and so i i just love those things uh and and speaking of boogie nights like i never liked the song sister christian i was always um i was always a like hardcore metal kid or it was like weird shit like radiohead or you know like i mean i've branched out since but at that time that's like all it was and i didn't like it until i see like essentially like the little epilogue or whatever um whenever they go whenever they go to the drug house to like rob the guy or whatever and sister christian kicks on and you have this dude dropping firecrackers and everyone's freaking i mean what a brilliant scene right but like now every time i hear that song i like love it (laughs) and it's not even that i consciously think of it you know, I, I've never a Night Ranger fan, but again, it's like gives exactly. that song life and it, it gives that song meaning. And 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 to their credit, Night Ranger, it's like, you know, that's the thing with any kind of art. You know, it, it uh, maybe you miss something when you look at a painting and you don't see something. And then 
you know, you go back to it or someone else can appreciate it in a way that you can. And then you go back and you're like, oh, I, I see that I could see this. And you end up having a different relationship with it, whether it's a song or a movie or a painting or, or a play or whatever it is. You know, I think that happens all the time. So who knows? Maybe the Night Ranger song is just a good song, you know, and, and, and I didn't know it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, that's a good, a good way song, to put it. A good, song, a good song of the time, you know, it's, yeah. it's you know, that kind of thing. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I'm on your bus. So, so taking a little bit of a detour here, I want to I want to go back a little bit here, um, sure. because I'm really fascinated by like uh, basically comparisons that different reviews for 18 to Party have made of you, and I, I want your input on this though. So, first off, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, uh, in New York State. Um, like in the outer suburbs, probably like 80 miles north of New York City. Gotcha. So how do you get from, you know, north of New York City in the suburbs, right? How do you go from there to becoming, I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, you were a writer primarily first, and then, you know, now you can call yourself a director. So uh, like what led you to that? Like what were the, I'm assuming if I had to guess that you saw something or you saw some movies that inspired you, but maybe writing came first. I mean, like which came first and how did you get into film? Like what was that? You know, in some ways, it's some ways for people who listen to this, it's like, if nothing else with my life, it, it's, it can be a little bit inspiring to hear it because not because of, of some arduous path or, you know, or stick to itness or anything is that I started pretty late, you know, I never went to, I, you know, I went to college. I studied political science. I don't remember any of it. Uh, I moved to Colorado after for a couple of years and, you know, I did nothing. You know, I moved to New York City. I was 24 already, you know, and, you know, my friends were well, uh, you know, well into what they were going to be doing. You know, I never did anything in the arts, nothing. I didn't, I was not really taking creative, never took a creative writing class, never took anything, you know, um, I did maybe in, in hindsight now, I guess I did like movies and maybe a different way than other kids did, but I wasn't a precocious movie devourer. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I was like, instead of like, every, you know, everyone would watch planes, trains and automobiles and I'd watch it 15 times. You know what I mean? It was just like, <laughs> yeah. like that kind of thing, you know? So it wasn't some, so I wasn't precocious and I wasn't particularly, um, you know, I didn't have a breadth of knowledge about film. You know, I, I wasn't like the kid with a high eight camera or, or like, you know, talking about Kurosawa and having no one to talk to him with, you know what I mean? It wasn't that, wasn't my, my experience. Um, and, uh, you know, in the first job I had, I, uh, um, I, I, I got a job as an assistant at, at, a, at a talent agency, uh, a talent management company, an agency basically. Um, and I'd never been around anything, you know, I'd never been around the business or anything like that. And um, I don't know, like something happened. And I, you know, there's, you're reading screenplays a lot. And, and, um, and after a while, you just start having an attitude like, oh, this thing sucks. You know, it's that the other, you start learning about the craft of screenwriting. You know, I have this one thing that's so funny because uh, I was just like, I, I, I was just like a judgmental dick in so many ways and, and, uh, but based on nothing like I had no experience with anything I didn't I didn't even I couldn't spell film school I, I mean none of that stuff happened you know um and I remember this is I think I was you know it was one of my first weeks or something 
um, in a, a, a working at this place and I read a script called Swingers, you know, and like, I remember Heather Graham was a client of this company I was working with. And uh, I think she had just finished, she had finished it or whatever, but it was lying around. No, it hadn't been shot yet. And I read it and I was just like, this sucks, man. It's so stupid. <laughs> I was like, so stupid, the Vegas baby and all that shit. And I, I remember telling a friend of mine who's a novelist and like a, you know, a very su- successful novelist. And I'd call him and be like, oh, this sucks, man. Like, you know, and tell him all about it. And then it came out like whatever. A few years later, I remember seeing it and just like saying, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like I just, and it's just because I just didn't get it. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like I didn't get it. And in two minutes of watching it when it came out, I was just like, I'm so stupid. You know, I'm just, I'm just a dumb person. You well, know, and that's how I, Go ahead. Yeah, that's how, yeah, and that's how you learn, you know. And I think that um, I bounced around. My twenties were not memorable. Um, <laughs> I love to all. put it that way. They just weren't memorable. Yeah, they weren't memorable. <laughs> um, and I think you know, and and I'll tell you exactly what it was. I you know I worked at a different talent agency. I was an assistant there, and I uh, and I struck up a friendship, a lifetime friendship with Philip Hoffman, the actor who Dude. was. Yeah. I, well, real quick, I was going to ask you about this. So uh, keep telling me, but um, I saw sure. that you had a producer credit for Love Liza, yeah, yeah. which well, is that's crazy. The, so please yeah, keep going, but I got to yeah, hear about yeah, this. Yeah. And I, I, don't know, I was like 25 or 20. I didn't know anything, man. And, uh, um, and I was a, and Philip was a client of this company, you know, and another thing I'll, I'll bounce around, but it's always good to hear about how people acquire taste, how people, uh, acquire, um, you know, just standards or creative standards. You know, I worked at this company. It was a, it was a talent agency. I think there weren't more than 50 actors in this. It was a really boutique company. It was really good. It was called writers and artists. That was the name of the agency. And, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. And I don't know of like 60, 70 actors in New York. Um, the actors were, uh, like Philip was there. Uh, and these are, and Philip was, was 27, you know, when I met him. And I remember when I met him because we ended up, I don't know, we ended up going to a Yankee game and he had just come back from making Twister. That was the movie. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, it was cool. And, and uh, but Philip was a client there. And these are all like people before they did anything. Philip and Leah Shriver and Billy Crudup and Paul Giamatti. So and, hold on though, around what year was this though? This was, I would say this is around 90... 1997. Okay, 19... so he he's probably about to release Boogie Nights. But he's, he's about to, he was about to make Boogie Nights. You gotcha. know what I mean? Okay. Like, a little later, and uh, and but these like actors, like I mean, the list is that Bill Macy was an was a client there. These are all guys that like and um, like Hope Davis and and uh, Wendell Pierce was there. Just like just by chance, these some of the great actors of this coming generation, you know, are you hanging and, with these guys at all? Well, it was the thing is like, it was a small, it was a small, it was a small company. And like, when you're an assistant, you sort of get paid nothing. And, but you get to like, go see, like the, if you're Lose. the client, clients are always doing theater, you know, in New York at that point, you know, maybe doing a couple indie movies. They're just starting to get their, their, their feet wet, you know? And, um, so it'd be like, hey, I, I'm going to go see, and, and you get to go to theater for free, 
usually, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, and I got, and I remember very, I remember seeing like, uh, I think I saw Billy, it was Billy uh, Crudup and, and Paul Giamatti were in uh, Stoppard's Arcadia. It was playing at Lincoln Center. And I remember seeing that. It was one of the first plays that I saw when I got to New York City. And I was just like, this is fucking, this is amazing, you know? And there's a reason why it's amazing, you know? And, the, and it's amazing because it's Tom Stoppard and it's like Paul Giamatti and Billy Crudup and these like young actors who are extraordinary. You know, I would see Phil... Phil would always do theater in New York, you know? And I remember seeing a play he did at the public once where I just like, it just blew my mind. And then all of a sudden you're seeing, I remember seeing a movie that Leah Shriver did very, very early in his career. And, and, uh, and Wendell Pierce was doing things. So, so the people that you're like, so I have, I'm basically a, a just a canvas, like a blank canvas of nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nothing extraordinary. And all of a sudden I'm seeing these things and these people, and I don't realize it at the time, but like these are the standards and the creative standards that I start, I start to grow up with, you know? And, uh, and, and it makes a big difference. You know what I mean? It's like when you're, when you're building your taste and, and, you know, cutting your teeth on, on these, these wonderful, these wonderful artists, it's like, you, you kind of know and you don't know, you know, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons why the film and I'll get back to, uh, uh, I'll get back to 18 a party, but like one of the reasons why is like the, the thing I was most confident about going into that is I was like, I know that I'm going to find the right kids. I know. It, Cause I know what is good. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like I was like, the rest of the movie might be a mess. I don't know, but I know that we're going to have a chance for it to be good. Cause we're going to get great kids. But Back to the film thing, I remember Philip, uh, I remember him giving me a script called Love Liza that his brother wrote. And he was like, hey, do you wanna like try to like try to produce it or whatever it was? And I was just like, yeah. And I didn't know anything. I didn't, I knew nothing about movies at all. You know? And and so I just remember asking other people, like, I was like, hey, do you know a producer? And they introduced me to another producer and another one to come on. And all of a sudden there were five producers. And then all of a sudden this person wanted to do it actually when that when that movie started out phil wasn't a very a really known actor you know i don't and even think the, he had done like a a lead role yet i i want i, don't I, I could be mistaken never, but i'm he pretty had never sure he had never done a lead role yeah. you know uh, maybe it's funny he didn't do a lead role but it might have been um I don't, you know i don't but he did ripley you know and yeah. and uh and it wasn't like quote unquote a lead role, but it was like, I mean, he stole the film. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He stole the film from people who were great, you know? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I think he did, you know, was, he, was, he was so wonderful. So people started to understand like after Boogie Nights and after Ripley, you know, and then like, whether it was like Todd Solon's movie or he did this movie, he did this oh. Schumacher movie, he did this Schumacher movie called Flawless with De Niro. And, and yeah. so he, so very, it was. It wasn't a very big secret in yeah. New York City, you know. That this also, was Big like, Lebowski too. Let's not jump over that. <laughs> totally. No, he did. It's funny when you look back on that. It's like you know. It's. I mean, I was. I was thinking about him today. He was. You know, I was thinking about him today for a couple uh, specific reasons. And, uh, um, but he like. But incent of a woman. You know, I knew actors who would reference that movie and him that like artists, actors, people that have gone on, I think, to have careers when they were young, they were like, when I saw Scent of a Woman, 
he was so great. And I don't know if you remember him in Scent of a Woman, but he was so good. And uh, he was just great. And he's just, there was never a role that he didn't take seriously or like put his entire life into. And that's why his performances are what they are, you know, and he elevated everything. And so, you know, but still like, I think at the time, I mean, independent film was, was different than in terms of budgets. Cause I think the budget of Love Liza was like, I don't know, a million bucks maybe, yeah. but, but nowadays it wouldn't really probably have gotten made. And if it did get made, it would be made for 300 grand. You know what I mean? It would just like, you know, whatever it was, but um, if it could be made at all. And we tried to cast that role. And, and it, I think it's a, I think it took five years or three, four years to get that movie going. And, and, uh, and so we offer it to actors and stuff like that. And, and no one would do it. And of course, like Gordy, you know, Phil's brother who wrote it, I mean, basically wrote it for Phil, you know, and then at a certain point it was, it was after Ripley, it was after a couple things where it was like, okay, you know, Phil can make this movie. He can be the lead in the movie. And, and, and he did. And uh, it's a good movie. Yeah. You know? And it had Kathy Bates in it, which is crazy. Yeah. yeah Kathy Bates. That was, yeah. We had Kathy Bates, you know, and uh, it was, you know, and, and so basically after that experience, you know, again, I had never been on a movie set before. I'd never been in a, in a film class. I'd never written anything. I've never done anything. And I'm 30 years old. Yeah. This you know? is blowing and, my mind though. Let me interrupt you. I'm so sorry. But so you're saying that you moved around the country and there was, it was not memorable to quote you. And then no, I was you in New York go, city. I, yeah, I, yeah. I was in New York city. Yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah. Yeah. So then you end up moving to New York city and you just happened to get a job at a talent agency. Like that was just, it wasn't about movies. It wasn't any of that. You're no, just like, I need a job. I remember, I'll tell you. I remember this really well. Like I came back from Colorado. I smoked, you know, I just, obviously I smoked a lot of pot and, uh, I, and my, and, you know, we lived like in the way outer suburbs again, like I said, like 80 miles North. And, uh, and I remember I moved back home. So I was 24. I lived with my mom. I would get high in my room and just like, you know, I, I had no plan. And I used to like go into the city to go on in job interviews. And so, um, and like, I'd look in the back of newspapers and say like, oh, oh, maybe I'd like advertising, you know? I mean, this is like the, this is how much I thought this through, you know? Yeah. And so I go in and like interview, I probably wore a suit that I had from high school, you know? <laughs> and, and I uh, would like interview for God knows what, I couldn't really get interviews. So, um, and so nothing. So basically my point is that, and then my mother's, uh, my stepfather, he had a uh, sister who ran a modeling agency, you know, and someone there knew someone, this woman who needed like an intern, basically, uh, this talent management company. And, um, and I met her and I was, and I got a job bartending downtown in Soho and I didn't have a place to live. And she said she'd pay me $6 an hour if I was like her assistant basically, and I could, I could stay at her office. That's where I could sleep, you know? And that's what I did. It was on 57th between 5th and 57th street between six and seventh and right next to Carnegie hall. And, uh, I, you know, I was 24 years old and I would bartend and I'd go up and I'd sleep there. And 
I would like answer phones the next day. I didn't know anything. I mean, I, I was like a rube. I didn't know. I didn't, I, I'd never, I'd never seen a fax machine before at, at that time. You know, when those curly thermal sheets came out, I was like, I have no, I don't know how to ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know how to make a phone call. If I had to call like another country, it was just like, I have no idea what that means to do, you know? Um, and so basically what I'm saying is I just didn't, I, there was no pedigree at all for this, you know? Um, and then, and I ended up getting a job there. If like I'd gotten a job at an advertising company, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like it just was one of those things, you know? And I think like, you know, I, and I had a lot of opinions about movies. My, again, like one of my best friends and is, uh, who's, who's a novelist now. It's like, we would talk about movies a lot. And when you're young, you know, it's like, when you're young, you're just like judgmental assholes. You know what I mean? So we just like decided everyone sucked, you know, like we, <laughs> we were nothing. I remember we had a conversation once, like, I think it was like when Forrest and Gump came out or after that, and we were talking about Tom Hanks and we were just like, God, Tom Hanks sucks, man. And like, <laughs> and it's so funny. Like we, we talked about it recently. We were just like, Tom Hanks is so wonderful. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. so, it's almost like every person we ever said sucked is actually just wonderful. And we were the ones that sucked, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and so after, you know, after, um, it's, it's cool talking about this cause I just haven't thought about this in a while. And, uh, and it was after and my, and the same friend and I came up with an idea for a movie. Um, it was a teen comedy. It was really weird. And I, uh, and he, and he started writing, like he had a, uh, he had already published a novel in his late twenties. That was like a bestseller. And he was just like doing his own thing. And so it was after love lies. And I, it was after I was 30. I know that it was, like I was 31 years old and I came back from love lies. Uh, I didn't have any money, you know, cause I didn't, I, I didn't make one penny from doing that. You end up losing it. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember, but I remember the thing I remember from being on set there, I, it demystified everything. I was just oh, like, yeah. Oh, I was like, I can do this. I don't know what it is, but I can do it, you know? And I could definitely do the writing. You know, I didn't know, I didn't really understand the directing because direct, directing is so purposefully mystified by people that like very few people think that they could go on a movie set and do it, you know? And, uh, but I remember coming back, coming back for, we shot it in Louisiana and Alabama. I remember coming back and I told my buddy that, I was like, hey, I'm going to write that idea that we have. I'm going to write a screenplay, you know. And I had met a manager, a literary manager, who uh, I'd met her through someone, I think, from the movie or a friend of a friend. And um, I, remember, I, I remember telling her, I was like, here's the idea. And she's like, oh, that's really good. Why don't you write it? And I was like, okay, I'll, I, don't know, I don't know how to do this. And... She was like, well, why don't you just like write a few pages and fax them to me, you know, and, and, you know, just do that. And I remember writing the first 10 pages of this thing. And, and this is um, an 18 to party. This is a, a teen comedy you're talking about. A teen, a teen comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I remember writing it and I remember I faxed it to her and she called me back and she said, this is terrific. And I was like, and it was just that one sort of second of like validation or, or encouragement. I was like, oh, I can do this. And like, and I wrote this movie, then my buddy helped with some things and I, 
just decided I was going to, I wanted to like direct it. And, and, and that manager ended up like sending it around and people really liked it. And, and, um, and of course I couldn't direct it cause I had never done anything before. Um, but at a, and then at a certain point soon after, you know, year or so after, um, I got a call that Trey Parker and Matt Stone really liked it, you know? Really? And, yeah. And I was like, that's incredible. They were like, yeah, Matt, you know, Matt wants to, I mean, uh, Trey wants to direct it and, you know, they want to bring you out and, and work on some stuff in the script. And I went out there and uh, I, I sat in a writer's room with Trey Parker and Matt Stone for four or five days. And we, we, you know, it's, it was just like, I was saying, I, they, I was, I was stayed at the four seasons, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, totally. And like, it was just all of a sudden I was like doing this, this thing, you know, and, uh, and it was, it was incredible. It was an incredible, it's still, it's still, the, it's still the peak, you know, like, you know, years later, it's still the peak of, of, I feel like my, my career. And it was like one of the really early things. And, uh, um, and it just happened like that. So the point is, and then the saga of that script can go on for 15 years, you know, cause Trey was going to direct it. And then Paramount didn't want to make it. And then I was going to direct it at another company that went under. And then there were all these, you know, iterations of this and this movie and uh, it's still not made. Uh, it's still really good. Um, and <laughs> it is it's so fucking good. It's just, it's just so fucking good. Um, and uh, you know, with good reason, you know what I mean? It was funny. And, and in terms of people listening to this who are writers, you know, um, I remember like when I got to LA and I, I, and I, I met up with Trey and Matt, I remember Trey saying, you know, I read like one script a year, you know, and cause they just like, he has so many people that work for him and stuff. There's like, you know, a lot are filtered out, you know, he was like, I read like one script a year. And he said with this script, he was like, you know, you could take this script to like Sandler's company or something like this as is, and it, it would be a hit, whatever, you know, or you could like do, something really weird with it and he like taught me like he, he he i mean he would never know this you know i haven't spoken to him in years but like um i remember really clearly there was a point in the middle like the midpoint of the movie that he suggested something should happen and i was just like there's no way that can work there's just no way it's, it's insane to do that and we did it and it worked, you know, it was just this incredible, it was just incredible. He's, he's a really, he's an extraordinarily creative person, obviously, you know? Um, and so I just learned a lot from that. And then, you know, I had always, and so I got into it. I wanted to like direct like everyone. I never, again, I, I never been, I never made a short, you know what I mean? I never do anything about yeah. anything, you know? And then, and then like, I got a few other jobs writing and, um, and a lot of stuff just never got made, you know? And then I was like, hey, I'll, I'll um, you know, I optioned a book that uh, for years I tried to get made and we almost did. And, and it was just a, you know, it was a sad ending to that. And then all of a sudden I was just like 40, <laughs> you know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden I was 40 and not that hot anymore. You know what I mean? And, uh, um, and I hadn't done that thing. And, and the other thing too, is that there was a moment, you know, when uh, I had a little bit of a little bit of heat, you know, and when I say a little bit of heat, like the amount of heat one can get who never has a movie produced to that point, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, hey, this guy's pretty good, you know, 
And there was a time then where I could have just said, you know what, I'm just going to push this all aside and use this moment to write something and direct it, you know, and, and maybe I can do that. But again, like we talked about money earlier on, it's like, you know, if someone was offering money to write a script or rewrite a script, I just said, yes. Do you know what I mean? I was just like, this yeah. is never going to happen again. If some, you know what I mean? It's like someone said, Hey, here's 50 grand to like write this thing. I'd be like, all right, I don't care what it is. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It was just like, I'll never get 50 grand again in my whole life, you know? And so, and I would do that. And, and it was to my, to my, uh, you know, it's, it, it didn't, it, it wasn't the thing to do because when you're writing things or rewriting things that don't quite work or they're not like, you don't really feel a connection to them. You're not going to be, you're not going to make them good, you know, and they're yeah. not going to make, and they're not going to make you good. And, you know, it's, and it's going to end up hurting you, you know, because no one cares about the nuances of the creative process in, in Hollywood. You know, they're just like, Oh, who rewrote this? Oh, Jeff wrote, uh, it's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's like, it doesn't matter like what you did or the calisthenics or, you know, heavy lifting you did to get it to a certain place, you know, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, and, and, and so that happened. And so by the time, and then I'd moved out to LA and then, I um, got a few more jobs out there, you know, same kind of thing. But again, just like running out of gas felt like, you know, um, cause I'd never wanted to just do that, you know? Yeah. And so I worked with other directors, like really great directors. And, uh, and it's hard because when you're kind of like a frustrated director, like you don't know that that's what you are, but that's what you are, you know? Um, and it's hard. So it's, it's just, it's, it's difficult sometimes for everyone in a way. And, uh, um, and then I just was like, you know what, I'm going to write this thing and, and uh, I'm going to write this, you know, I had an idea originally, I had the idea as a play, 18 to Party, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask something- you about that because I could totally yeah. feel that, yeah. Yeah, it's something I thought about for years. I mean, when I was 28 years old, I had this idea because all these things happened in my hometown and I, and I really liked uh, going back when you're talking about like Letter and stuff like that. Um, actually one thing that's to note before I started writing, another thing happened, um, before I started writing that first teen comedy, I was 31 years old after Love Liza. I, um, I was like, I can, I, you know, I'm, I can do this. And 9-11 happened. Um, I was in New York city downtown at the time. And it was like, a, it was, I mean, it was 9-11, you know? Um, yeah. and I remember, Later in the week, a few days later, um, <clears throat> I lived in Chelsea and there was a movie opening on, on Friday. It was called Together. It was a Swedish movie by a director named Lucas Moodyson. And I, uh, <clears throat> and I just was like, I told my, I, like my buddy came over and we were just like, yeah, let's go just see this movie or whatever. And it was fucking awesome. It was so good. And watching that movie, and it's a low-concept movie about a hippie commune in the 70s. Um, I don't know if you know this director. I actually don't. What's the name of the movie again? It's called Together. Um, again, it's a Swedish film. And it's, uh, he's made other movies. He made a movie called Lilia Forever, which is extraordinary. He made a film a few years ago called We Are the Best, which was on Netflix for a while. It was a teen. Yeah. It's a it's another teen movie about a girl band. And uh, 
he's extraordinary. And I think that watching this film, which is still one of my favorite films together, um, and watching someone be able to do so much with words and with actors and with, with feeling. And, you know, it, it was like, you can do anything, you don't, you know, you could do anything, you know? And that was kind of what I like aspired to do was like, you know, something like that, you know, um, I wasn't going to wow people with some great sci-fi technique, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, all, all I had was just like my heart, my mind and like, you know, what I wanted to say and, and, um, and you know, back up to, you know, 18 to party. It's like, I, I, I was really frustrated with film and I was like, you know, I'm going to write this as a play. And I did a couple workshops of the play and I did a workshop at Williamstown theater festival. Um, again, this is only because I knew someone, not because it was great, you know, sure, yeah. at that point. Um, and a great theater director, uh, came on to it. This woman, this wonderful director, like a, a, a Tony winning director. And she was like, I really love this. And I was like, oh my God, this is like all my fantasies come true. It's my first play, you know? And, and it's, it's, it's probably as, you know, as hard as it is to get an independent film made, it's harder to get a play up, especially, bet, get a, yeah. <laughs> especially to get a play up with 10 teenagers. You know, it's like, you know, theater producers like plays with four people in their 30s talking to each other around a table. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. They do. And sometimes those movies are, those plays are incredible, you know. Um, but no one wanted to do this. And I was just like, you know, um, I ended up talking to a, a friend of mine and then another friend. And just, just I could, I could just skate through these details. But I ended up adapting it for a film. Um, and, you know, my friend Andrew came on board to sort of like kind of push me further into doing it. And then I had a, I had a lunch with uh, Emily Ziff Griffin, who is uh, an extraordinary writer herself. And uh, she was Philip's, Philip Hoffman's production partner for years. And I, so I knew her for 15 years, you know. Yeah. Uh, and she was working with this, with this, uh, with this financier who was really excited about film and, and, uh, and she was like looking for projects. They hadn't made one yet. And I said, you know, I wrote this thing, you know, I think it's really cool. It's really different. It's really, it's kind of weird. Um, nothing really happens. It's teenagers. It's period. It's like, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't exactly sell it well, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and again, like, I mean, that was, I mean, a few years ago and then, and I think that started happening in March. And then by July we were shooting, you know what I mean? I, I moved back to New York um, and it just came together so quickly. And it was one of those things that was like, even up till the day before we started shooting, we weren't sure we were going to be able to do it. And, and, and we ended up making this film, you know, and that's, that, that's how that happened. And, and so, yeah, but it was an idea I had years prior, you know, just wanting to do something. And, you know, I grew up with John Hughes, of course, I grew up, uh, I mean, Linkletter, it's funny because he's so, he's so youthful, you know, and his spirit yeah. is so young that it's kind of like, like, wow, like Richard Linkletter is 60 now, you know, it's like, it's, un, yeah. it's unfathomable, you know. Yeah. Um, but I just never, I never thought of his films as like, uh, you know, as, as some, just, they weren't the things that I wanted to make. I like them a lot, you know, just, I didn't make the connection again. Like I made this connection between this, 
you know, the Swedish director and what he did more than anything else, you know. Um, and, uh, and I think for me, it's like, again, so, you know, that whole career of, of, uh, of writing, like 15 year writing career with its ups and its downs, and then a lot of frustration and a lot of being rewritten and a lot of studio notes and producer notes that are very, very difficult after a while, you know, um, to manage. For me, they were, you sure. know, for other, for other artists, they, they weren't in here because you're always being told like ah, more needs to happen or let's raise the stakes here, do something here. And with 18 to party, I was like, you know, it's about 13 year olds, you know, and, uh, and things that are going on to 13 year olds are fucking important, you know? And so if a girl did something that she's embarrassed about when she was 12 years old or nine years old, that's going to haunt her and hurt her and be a huge thing in her life. And so when we were all kids, we all knew what that was like. We all knew what it was like to be in middle school and have those things. And, and, um, and I was like, I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I can write something that's compelling, that's, that's really just kids talking and nothing happening. And it was almost like this own like personal challenge because I was like, ah, maybe I can't really write, you know what I mean? Maybe I can't do it. And, and then over the course of time, I was just able to kind of, I got a lot of uh, suggestions along the way. I wrote a lot of crappy drafts of things that I would send to someone and they'd say, oh, do this, do this. And I'd work on this, this woman, Julie White, who's this wonderful actress. She directed the workshop in Williamstown. And um, I remember like she had told me something that I'd never forgotten for a writer. And she's, she's an actor and she's the top of her craft. And, and uh, you know, she said, when you're writing for an ensemble, um, the goal needs to be that you want every actor when they go home at night to think they have the most important role in the play, you know? Yeah. And I never thought of it like that. I never thought, obviously you, it can't happen, but if you aspire to that kind of, you know, standard or to that level of like perfection or whatever, whatever you want to call it, then you, you're, you're doing the best you can with it. And I think like a movie, like the breakfast club, I think John Hughes did that. Well, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, if you, if you look at that passes the limit, it's like any of those actors, if you were Judd Nelson or Molly Ringwald or Ali Sheedy, it's like, you could go home at night and be like, it's my role is really the role, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I don't think there's a lot of, I don't think there's a lot of films and plays that do that, or maybe the great ones are the ones that do it. You know, I, I don't know. It's funny. You, you, uh, you brought up reservoir dogs. Like that came to mind as something that feels that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, if you're yeah. Bouchette, if you're, you know, um, you know, Chris Penn or whoever you are, it's like, you could be like, yeah, mine's the role. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like, absolutely. That's the one, you know, so it's, so it's pretty cool, you know, and, and, and like Magnolia, it's like, you know, these, all these, these, these great, 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 you know, pieces of, of, of work, you know. Um, so that basically was, was what happened. And it was this opportunity to sort of exercise all of that pain, you know, there's real pain when it comes to like writing and creating and, and having to re be having to like get notes and do things that you just don't want to do. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that these extraordinarily generous people like Nikola Dorachevic, who uh, is a, um, a producer of the film and, and, uh, and he got the financing for it. It's just like, this movie wasn't something that, you know, it wasn't, 
it didn't have big hit written all over it. It was going to be unknown actors. It was going to be this short shoot. It was going to be this thing. And I was able to do every single thing that I wanted to do. Nothing was changed in the script. You know, they had ideas and I would change them based on their good ideas, but like I could do anything, you know, I could do anything I wanted. And when you have that freedom, you end up being more collaborative. You end up, you know, it's just one of those like sort of counterintuitive things where, you know, so many people participated and we were able to make this film and, you know, if some, if people are going to find it, who knows, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's, uh, just one of those things. It's hard to get a movie out. It's hard to, you know, and, and in the best of times, you know, um, <clears throat> the world of festivals, the world of, you know, exhibitors, distributors, everything. It's just a, it's a complicated world, you know, yeah. and it's a disheartening world. And so, and it's um, it crazy. It's crazy because whenever you have a movie at like your level where you're hitting these festivals and stuff, and we'll even talk about outside of a pandemic, okay? But just when you're in the yeah. festivals, that's still what, like less than five percent of movie goers know what those films are until they actually come out. You know what I mean? Yeah, like if, until they're yeah. until if they, they are. If they come out, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, whenever you're in the festivals, you're playing to like people in the business or critics or, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the big thing, thing right? Well, the thing is with festivals is you're only playing to, you're only playing to how like um, distributors that like might want to buy your film. You're really only in, in America. You're really only playing to them at Sundance and South by and Tribeca, you know, That's, those are the places where there are buyers for film, but like, and that, and that's why 15,000 films will get submitted to Sundance and they're going to take a hundred, you know what I mean? Sure. It's uh, it's, and so, and so what happens with independent film is, is, you know, people, you know, people generally like what people like and people are interested in what other people are interested in. And so, um, you know, if Sundance accepts your movie, suddenly it's just like, oh, wow, that's, I got into Sundance. That's fucking crazy. And then all of a sudden it's like, everyone is like, oh, that's the movie. You know, yeah. that's the one, even if they've never seen it, it's like, that's the thing. And then of course there's 14,000 other people who didn't get into Sundance, you know? And, and their movies are, some of those movies are better. You know, some aren't, some are, you know, it's art, who knows? It's like, you know, whatever it is, but it's not necessarily a meritocracy when it comes to like going to a, a, a festival like Sundance or, or South by or Tribeca, you know, sure. it's like, these are very, very, it's like a different, to me, it's like a different world. And, you know, we had a great agent who fell in love with the movie and, uh, um, and who had, who had represented the Sundance winner the year before. It's like, we were just like, we were like, Oh, this is going to be awesome. We can get into Sundance, you know? Yeah. It was we just didn't get into Sundance, you know? And, and so, so the festival world's hard. Like we didn't get into a lot of places, you know? And, you know, and then this past year we got, you know, we, we premiered at Woodstock. We went to Liverpool a few weeks ago. We won Liverpool and there's like a few festivals, but it's like, you know, I mean, the pandemic didn't help, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, um, so it's just one of those things. And then originally we're supposed to be released in May and do like uh a small theatrical release first in, in, in uh, LA and in New York. And uh, that did for obvious reasons couldn't happen. And so, you know, we have this other 
option, you know, that everyone else has, which is like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go VOD, you know, and like, sure. and we are really lucky too, just because Alamo draft house, like, you know, wanted to show it on their virtual cinema cinema and Lamley wanted to show it. This is before it comes out on VOD on Amazon prime and iTunes on December 1st, yep, uh, which is the uh, day that this is going to drop. Yep. So today, yeah. if you're listening to this, it is available. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, and so it's just one of those things. So you get your film out and you get, we, we've gotten a lot of reviews, which is great, you know, and, uh, um, and some extraordinary reviews and some that aren't, you know, uh, which is kind of cool because it's kind of a weird film. And, uh, and some people just get it and they love it and they think it's like one of the best films they saw of the year. Other people are like, oh, it, it wasn't. I think some people go in there waiting, thinking they're about to see super bad, you know, and it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not that, you know, it's not that, yeah. you know, it's closer to it's closer to Beckett than it is, you know, Apatow, you know, and uh, that's yeah. really kind of what it is. And so, so it's really just an exercise in gratitude. And it's like so many people work so hard. So many people did so much and so many people spent time and energy and money and, you know, to get a film. And, and like, once you, you know, once the fan, everyone has, everyone has made a film or if you wrote a song or you did something, you fantasize about, being at the big festival or being here and this happening. Oh yeah. You know, I'm, I'm no different, you know? And, uh, and then, so, so what happens is if those things aren't happening, you can get really down, you get really disappointed and down. And I think like what this process is done. And I did, I did admittedly. And then suddenly you're just like, wait a second, we did this great thing. And, and we have this great opportunity and I have this great opportunity to, to make the, who gets, who gets to make a movie. You know what I mean? It's like, who gets to do that? You know, that someone else is paying for and that you're able to do what you want. It's just like, who knows, you know, and, uh, and people that believe in it. And then once it's done, it's a whole, like once the movie's shot, it's a whole other movie that needs to be made. You know, once yeah. you start editing, once you, I mean, it's just, it, and it takes commitment. It takes real commitment and it takes, you know, the people who are spending the money on the film, like to, to watch and be like, you know, we believe in this so much. Like we think this is so great and, and to keep supporting it. And, um, you know, it's like, so it's like a, so it's a dream come true for me. It's like the, the, it's done pretty well so far. And, yeah. and, uh, so we're proud of it, but like, again, it's, it's, uh, it's really just a, it's been a long sort of, you know, journey and, and exercise and lesson about gratitude. I think more than anything else, you know, yeah. or it's like, this is pretty cool, you know, and, uh, um, it's cool. I get to talk to you, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, you know, it's like whether a thousand people hear you or a hundred or 10,000, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It's just like, you know, Hey, this is why we do it. You know, we do it and we share it and you share your, you know, what you think and what you do. And that's what we do as artists. And then and that's what it is, you know, and that's what it feels like. So, you know, we're, we're excited. So we hope people will see it and, and, uh, and tell people that they like it, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's really it. Well, so about the movie, because I, I love where you're going with this and <clears throat> excuse me, I, you know, one thing you'll notice watching it, if you're listening to this, um, and I hope you do watch it, um, is there's clearly like a, a, it's a dialogue driven performance driven movie. You mentioned the play, which, 
um, the way it's written, I just kind of got that. So it's like almost like a canned theater thing, except for there's a set. It's not a set. You guys were on location somewhere, I'm assuming. Yeah. But, um, but you know what I mean? Um, so th- the thing that I love about movies like this that I think is probably, if I had to guess, because I haven't looked into your to your critics, right? Uh, I don't know what people say uh, for or against 18 to Party. Um, but I, I find that some people have a hard time with dialogue-driven movies if it's not fucking Hitchcock. Right <laughs> or like or like something with what I mean is like a through line plot that is engaging in some way. I love movies about human beings. That's mm-hmm. my thing. I don't care if anything happens. You know, like whenever we talked last time, I don't expect you to remember this, but when we talked last time, I brought up Linklater's um, Boyhood, right, and how that movie mm-hmm. focuses on all the moments we tend to forget. Growing up, it doesn't show his graduation. It doesn't show him moving. You know, all these things that would be these like moments that we remember 50 years later. Uh, it's all these like little moments, these little things. And I think that's what's so beautiful. There's a movie called um, uh, My Dinner with Andre. It's a Louis Mal film cool. from the 80s. Hour and a half of people talking, and it's all bullshit. And it's amazing because I'm watching these two people have this intimate moment where they're talking about this wild shit that happened to one of them. Right. And so uh, I'm a huge dialogue fan. It's I I love a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? But if the dialogue's good and it's about human beings, I just recently watched uh, a Cassavetes film that I'd never seen love streams from the eighties. Actually uh, last episode, uh, which actually dropped today when we're recording this, uh, was uh, our favorite films in 1984 as a preface to my conversation oh, so with you, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I watched Love Streams prior to that, you know, and Cassavetes sure. has this incredible, um, it's that thing we just said, it, this incredible ability to take normal everyday things and make them interesting with these people who are struggling, right? And so bringing all of this back to 18 to party, one thing that I I can see being hard for some people, but it's the thing that I love about it most probably, is this is just about these kids living life in this moment. Of course, of course, the gimmick of it is they want to get into this club, but it's not about that. Like the movie's not about the club, right? It's it's about these kids and their relationships and, you know, what's happening. And I guess, you know, what inspired that? I know that when we talked last time, you mentioned growing up and a lot, there's like autobiographical sure. aspects, but just briefly, um, I mean, yeah, what inspired that well, type I think, of I think, focus? You know, it's, it's funny because in, in a lot of ways, like I said before, a lot happens in the movie, you know, and, yeah. uh, um, and uh, a lot's reconciled. It's 80 minutes long. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, uh, you know, including credits, it's, you know, and, and, and it does, there is a narrative, you know, and there's a couple narratives and there's, there's a, and there's payoffs and stuff like that. I think that, um, I mean, it, it, it's definitely autobiographical. Um, but I think the biggest thing I, you know, I, I omitted this is that I think the bigger idea is kind of like my relationship with generations and, and I'm a Gen Xer, you know, um, there's something about generation X that I value. And I, you know, I, I think really highly of, you know, it's the smallest generation. It's the most put upon generation. It's the most forgotten generation. It's the most lost generation in a way, you know, 
And it's like Generation X has quietly held everything together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, uh, and, and it was like that when we were kids. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, there was a lot of absentee parenting. There was like, it was the divorce wave. There was a, a it was the older baby boomers at that time that were, you know, I mean, the divorce rate was over 50%, which seems unfathomable now, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of kids there. It was called latchkey kids. There's a lot of kids walking around that like, you know, and there wasn't a lot of supervision, you know? And I grew up in an area where it was funny. It was a really small town. It was a small town, small school. I had 55 kids in my grade. You know what I mean? It's like um, grade six through 12 were all in one building, you know? Yeah. Um, very small, a few hundred kids. And, you know, when you're in sixth grade and you're in a building with 12th graders, they might as well be 50 years old. I mean, when you're 11 and 12 and there's 18, 19 year olds, you know? And so, you know, things happened in that, in, in amidst the high schoolers. And there was a, there was a suicide epidemic going on nationally and there was a suicide situation in our school and there was a lot of deaths in our school when I was like a kid, you know, I wasn't in the high school yet. Um, but it was, it, it made national news, you yeah. know? Um, and I just thought it was just one of those things that I didn't know a lot about. I heard stuff about. And so a lot of the details like in the movie are just like stuff that I heard that aren't necessarily what happened or, you know what I mean? But like, um, you know, but they come from real life and they come from like the things you hear as a kid. And, uh, I, you know, and so I really wanted to make a film about adults in a way. It's like, I want to make a film about that generation. You know, I think when kids were really not doing well, or, or there was a lot of accidents in my school, there was a lot of, whether it was car accidents or someone died doing this, or someone fell off a dam or these weird weird shit happened, you know, yeah. at a rate much higher than anyone could sort of imagine, you know? And as like, and, you know, and years go by and, and I always thought about it. You know, my sister still lives in the area. I still have friends in the area. And, and I was just like, you know, what, why did that happen? There has to be a reason, you know? And, and there isn't one reason, but I do think that one of the reasons is that like, no one was looking out, you know what I mean? And, and, that's what happened. And then, and I wanted to write about adults. I wanted to write that, but I wasn't particularly interested in writing for adults. So I was like, what about these kids? Like, what about these young kids and, uh, that are 13 years old? Because it, it didn't really interest me to write about 18 year olds or 17 year olds because they're too knowledgeable. They're too outward. When you're 13, you're still like kind of a little kid in a lot of ways. And you, you know, it's like you're completely about self, you know, and you're just living, you're not reacting to anything, you're just living in it, you know, and, uh, um, and you don't know what it is, and, and you don't know why it is, and it's funny, and, and at the same time, you know, and it's obviously a runner throughout the movie, is that there was a, there was a string of UFO sightings in my town, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, uh, uh, and all the details of the UFO in the movie are exactly what happened, you know? And, uh, and it went on for months, you know, that there were these sightings and there was like, uh, 
And then it turned out there's like what someone had, someone had made a video that you could see it actually on YouTube. Someone had made a video of this, uh, of, of this UFO and, uh, um, and there was no sound or anything. And, uh, it, it, it uh, like you couldn't hear it or anything. And then other people took video of, of similar things where you could hear, um, airplanes, you could hear the hum of airplanes. And so people were like playing up to the hoax and they would fly, airplanes in formation and freak everyone out you know so so it was like debunked that part of it but there was still this other video that that wasn't debunked and hasn't been debunked and uh um and so it's one it's funny because it is one of the the ufo sightings in the world that still has this little kind of like was that real you know what i mean (laughs) yeah and so, and that happened in our town and where in our community, you know, and uh, right around there. And so all of that was happening at the same time. And I just wanted to boil it down and, and figure out a way to tell this story, this big story in a really as compact way as possible. And, and I think that that's, that's what we attempted to do, you know? And, um, so yeah, that's yeah. kind of it. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, like how, you didn't really know why the suicide epidemic was happening, but like the best you can come up with now is people weren't looking out. Right. I think the important thing about that too is like, even if that's not true and I'm not saying it's not, but even if it's not, you are a person from that generation and that's how you feel. Right. And so like these characters, like it doesn't matter what's true. It's like what they're feeling. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I love that when you were talking, it was just, what? It's a great point. That was a great point because like, you know, it's, it's really reductive. Like anytime you're making, you're talking about this, you're going to sound reductive and simplistic, you know? So if I say, oh, someone wasn't worth looking out, I mean, that's a really sort of rudimentary kind of, you know, you know, ham fisted way. It's like some of these people that, that killed themselves had wonderful parents, I'm sure. You know what I mean? It's not really about that, but Overall, you know, there's this pattern that you can't like if, you know, when there's, you know, the kids talk about it, it's like this person died and this person, you know, just all these people just doing these things that like, you know, that they may not have been doing. And, and, uh, it, and one thing that, you know, I revisited it too, because it was written about the New York Times and People Magazine and stuff like that. It was a thing, you know. Uh, and when I spoke to other people over years, a lot of people said similar things happened in their town too. There was a suicide epidemic in this time, apparently in like the mid eighties or something like that. You know, again, I was really young or the, even the earlier eighties. Um, and I think, you know, I, and I went back to just read articles about it and how it was covered and, and, every adult, whether it was a superintendent or a principal or a teacher or a, you know, got like a town councilman or a parent, they were all asked, what's going on with our kids? What's happening with our kids? And they would all say, there is a, well, there's a lot of peer pressure. There's a lot of drugs. Someone mentioned the, the, uh, the job market. Yeah. I mean, does any, does any 16 year old kid give a shit about the job market? You know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, all these things, just like uh, uh, it was thing after thing, but not one of them said maybe we're not maybe we're not doing great. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe we're not the ones that are doing very good, and we could pick up our game a bit. 
you know, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and it just really struck me. And again, it's not an indictment on a generation or it's not, these aren't bad people. It's just the way that it was, you know? And, uh, um, and for me, that was always the sad part of this thing where it's like, things aren't, uh, you know, these, these, these terrible things are happening and they happened to a generation, you know, and then these kids, these younger kids that, that we're making a film about, you know, it's like, what's going to happen to them? Who knows? You know, and it doesn't yeah. matter in a way. And, and uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of the history of it. And um, yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting that, you know, it's all of these adults or all of these parents talking about what's going on with our children. And they're all asking each other this and yeah. they're pointing the finger everywhere else without actually maybe, you know, asking those who are being affected by it or, sure. you know, maybe trying to dive in and, and, uh, like learn about their children, <laughs> you know? Um, cause I grew up in a house, uh, with my mom and dad, my dad was, when I say gone a lot, I mean, not like as much as that implies, but he was working a lot. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't around as much. And my mom pretty much, uh, took care of me, disciplined me, like all those things, you know. And uh, but my mom was like very much, just do what I say. I don't care that I don't understand you. Just do it because I said so. You, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I do. And, and it's it's a very interesting. I guess I've just never thought of that until we're talking about it now. How that really could affect how not only future parents treat their children, but also like the generation that was going through it. I love how we're like so far away from movies now. Um, but like, uh, like with my daughter, we're not, we're not actually, no, we're not. Cause we are kind of dealing with 18 yeah, yeah. the party, but, um, yeah. but my, my daughter's nine. Right. And my, my job was, I made a conscious effort. I never want to be a parent like my parents. Now my dad's going to listen to this. Cause he's like, my podcast champion. Um, and dad, you're a great dad. Don't worry about it. But but I mean, like, um, but like I, I didn't want to raise my daughter the way I had been raised. Not because I was mistreated, not because I wasn't taken care of. I was taken care of. Great. My dad worked his ass off to take care of me. So did my mom. They did a great job the best they could, but there are things I wanted to change that I just learned you know, growing up, you know, I studied communication and I learned how to talk to people. And I understand whenever you have a nine-year-old, it's not probably the easiest thing to stand up, look at them and just like tell them things. Sometimes you might need to ask them questions or build a, like uh, uh, a a mutual understanding with them. Right. And so whenever I talk to my daughter, like we're super open. And, you know, if, if I say fuck in front of her, you know, uh, She'll just look at me and go, daddy, adult words. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Um, Because like, I don't shy away from her. I don't hide those things, but it's like, we have an understanding though. We understand what these words mean or we understand. I I don't sit around just curse like a sailor around my daughter. But my point is if I stub my toe and I'm just like, God damn it. Like, or whatever, you know, like she gets it and communicating like that. That's not something I ever got. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like growing up, it was very much kind of what you're describing. It's like, maybe we could have, maybe they could have been more present and like what's going on in my life or like, sure. you know, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm 35. Yeah. So I, like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm like that millennial Gen X, like uh, you're, overlap yeah, but you're, almost. You're, but you're a millennial. Do you know what I mean? It's I like, am, you, yeah. you, know, you know, you're pretty hard and fast. And that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, your parents are, you know, you know, right down the middle baby boomers, you yeah. know, probably. And, uh, um, and 
again, it's like, it always gets me into trouble talking about it. And because you can only talk about it in, in like a sort of simplistic way, but it's like, you know, I think baby boomers have a lot to account for, you know, I think, you know, I agree. uh, And, you know, and that's why I was talking about generation X. I mean, generation X is just like brutalized, you know what I mean? Really. And, uh, um, from the moment we entered sort of the job market, I mean, we entered a baby boomer world, you know, when you get into the world in the nineties, you know, I mean, baby boomers are like in their heyday, man, they're in their like four thirties and forties and fifties. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. white, white men. That's, that's who are baby boomers. You know what I yeah. mean? And, uh, um, and man, nothing changed, nothing changed in that time, you know? And, uh, um, in terms of where we, we've had a radical shift in our, in our, in our conscience, you know, it's like, it, it's been amazing what has changed. It's been amazing. The changes that have happened, you know, in, in, you know, from, from me too, to BLM to, I mean, the world is just different now, you know, it's just, it's, it's just not, it's just amazing what's happened. And, uh, and I think, I think, you know, your generation and, and, uh, the following generations have just like enormous amount to do with that. And it's really wonderful. And I think that generation X does too. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, 100%, in, a way, yeah. generation, in a way generation X was like the first, it's like, it's being in like in the front lines against baby boomers, you know, against a, a system or whatever you want to call it. A system that's just, I mean, again, we're going to have, we're going to have baby boomers for 30 baby boomer presidents for 32 straight years. You know, it's like, it's still happening. It's still, they're still holding on. He's yeah. a 70 year old president, but he's not even a baby boomer. He's older than a baby boomer. I think he's like, <laughs> I think he might have been born in like 41 or 42 or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just not ending and they're holding on for dear life. And it's like, while the world is changing around them and uh, you know, and, and it, all of this stuff is kind of like commentary that's being made in the film. And maybe they don't, and that's the thing with young kids is that, it's not insufferable because they don't really, they're not talking about it head on. It's not sentiment. They're not looking at each other in the eye and communicating heavy things because that's not what 13 year olds do or did. They talk at each other and around each other, you know, and it's for us to be able to sort of interpret like what's happening. You know, there's, you know, there's a kid in the movie that, uh, um, you know, he's a little high strung and he's, you know, worried about, you know, is he going to get dropped off at his house the next morning, you know, all that stuff. And yeah. he's like talking very slowly over these 80 minutes. He's like talking about his, his home life and whatever. And for us, we could just be like, Oh my God, this kid's being abused. He has no idea that that's what, that's what's going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's abuse, you know, and neglect and he's fucked. <laughs> that yeah. kid's fucked. You know, and I think that that's kind of what uh, it's what I wanted to write about. It's what interests me a great deal. My friends, when the word boomer comes up, my friends always just cringe. They're like, Jeff's going to like just go off on some crazy shit again. And they like hate because because it always sounds really reductive. And they're obviously they're wonderful baby boomers. You know, it's it's a it's a giant generation and it's more than a generation. It's a it's it's the it's what our world has been for the last 50 years, you know? Yeah. And now, now it's changed, you know? And it's so interesting that my generation, which again, I'm, I'm an early millennial, but I'm still in, I'm definitely a millennial. Uh, sure. But the thing is like, 
you know, I was raised by boomers, right? But all of my friends, like I attended my grandfather's church uh, when I was growing up, like my whole family was deeply rooted into this church. And when I was 12, I was able to go to uh, uh, the the youth group, which was like uh, maybe middle school and high schoolers or whatever combined. And so when I went in there, I immediately gravitated toward the 16, 17, 18 year olds, which were in the, they were Gen Xers, right? So it's yeah. interesting that I was raised by boomers, but like the vast majority of my friends, well, maybe not the vast majority, but at least half my friends were Gen Xers. So I'm being, in, it's very strange how both of those generations can affect like a very specific group of millennials. Cause I think that might go away, like, of course, later. But um, yeah, it's just, it's there. I, do you feel that, and we can kind of, we'll wrap up here in just a second, but. Uh, do you feel that Gen X and boomers are like opposites? Because as an outsider, I do, <laughs> but I, I could be wrong. Generation and generation X and baby boomers are complete opposites, you know? And, um, but there's one that's in the power position for the last 50 years, 40 years, and one that's not, you know, and, um, boomers like to torment Gen Xers. I've talked to, I've like, so I have some really close boomer friends that talk about, their lives and advertising and all their, I mean, whatever they did, it was when things were fun. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, you know, and that's really what happened is that it was really fun and it was really easy, you know, for a lot of white men born after 1944, 45, yeah. you know, and, uh, um, and baby boomers don't want to, they don't want to share, you know what I mean? And so, um, you know, so when I look at, like, I think the opposite of a boomer, it almost goes like some people will say that boomers are, have more in common with millennials in a way, you know, and uh, which is understandable because it can stagger like that. But Gen Xers, man, were like, you know, we were the product of them, you know, uh, a lot of parents, you know, my parents, you know, I had my mother, like if I call them beetle boomers sometimes, because there's some people who are born like from like 1940 to 1944, who culturally are boomers, you know, but like, you know, um, they're, they're not technically boomers, but it's really the same thing, you yeah. know? And so, you know, again, like the, the, the divorce rate with Gen Xers is way down. I mean, way down what it was, you know, it's like, you know, because Gen Xers got married later, you know, they had kids later. Um, and a lot just didn't want to be their parents, you know, very simply, you know what I mean? And That's it's, what I was uh, say, yeah. you know, and, and now generation X is always, and Generation O is Generation X is always stuck with the harder thing, and so now it's like they're you know Generation X is a generation that's taking care of elder parents, sick parents, and raising children at the same time. You know, it's like I don't have kids. Um, you know, my mother passed away about a year and a half ago, uh, and she had dementia. And my stepfather passed away a few months before that, and. Uh, the responsibility of, of being a, a caregiver for older parents and younger kids. It's just like, it, it's just what happens, you know, to my generation, you know, and I think it, so I think it's overlooked and I kind of wrote, I kind of wrote this movie as a kind of a love letter to, you know, Gen X and saying like, Hey, you know, it's uh, cause millennials give us shit, you know, and we're just like, dude, what did we, you know what I, what did we do? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah. interesting because it's like, you know, you have boomers, then Gen Xers, which, again, I see on a very different side of a spectrum. Sure. And then millennials do tend to just almost like fall somewhere in the middle. But it's also interesting uh, if you look culturally and technologically, even how that's changed things, because you have the boomers and then the Gen Xers are like rebelling. So like a lot of my Gen X fr- friends were like into like hardcore punk scene or they like got into grunge later, like like these kind of tight knit communities of people that were like sure. still like the opposite of their parents. So they could like find these uh, these like this community that kind of they felt um, heard or understood or sure. that they could like fit into so they would know who they are, find their identity. And then you have like millennials where like, you know, we can just like watch YouTube and watch all of your shit. Like we can well, see we, all the Gen X stuff. That's why in some ways, I mean, you're fucked too. You know what I mean? It's uh, because of that. I think what you're describing is that, you know, there's a tribal nature to Generation Xers. It feels like sometimes it feels like a family of 60 million, you know, and uh, and there's like a common, there's just a, and I think a lot of it has to do with technology because Generation Xers was the last generation to sort of straddle both the digital and the analog worlds. You know, it's like I, you know, my first, I, my first job in New York city, I smoked at my desk and I, and I worked on a typewriter, you know? Yeah. And so literally a month later, like it people came in to install those like huge Macs with the little screens, you know, that kind of thing. But it's like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know any of that shit, you know? And I was 25 years old, 24 years old, 20, yeah. you know? So it's uh, just one of those things I think that defines our generation the same way. And I think it's reflective of these kids that we see. I mean, the movie opens and these two kids are talking about apples and PCs, you know, it's like, and even in 1984, that discussion was being had, but only, but you had to learn that, shit from magazines you know what i mean it's like you like not a lot of kids knew that you know it's like that kind of stuff or we're able to talk about that kind of stuff you know and so i certainly was not one of those kids you know there were there but uh but anyway man yeah so that's it man i'm glad that you i'm glad that you had me on here it's cool just to be able to you know talk about a bunch of bunch of shit this is this is what i love man it was a great conversation i I gotta give you uh some credit some kudos for dropping the the video game king's quest i said (laughs) i sent you a message i'm a huge point and click game fan i grew up playing them so um i was like so hyped it was like i sent you like a message in instagram (laughs) about it because i'm just like if this dude's a point and click adventure nerd we're about to get into it dude um but no dude that was that was really awesome and uh why don't you do me a quick favor before we stop this and just tell listeners where they can find the movie uh today the day that this drops december 1st today where can they go get it uh today it is uh it's released wide on vod specifically amazon prime itunes and uh fandango and um i guess other places but those are the big ones those those the big ones, you know, and, uh, and I'm, there's several others that I just don't know, but it opens today. It was like, there was a soft opening this past month at Alamo and Lamley, but, uh, now it's going to be for everyone. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that it's out in the world and that people get to see it. Yeah. And I hope it does really well, man. And I appreciate you talking with me. Uh, sure. you feel good about this? Feel great. Thank you. Awesome, man. Thank you. All right, brother.
Well, yet again, Jeff Rhoda is awesome. I love that dude. Um, it's so fun just being able to have a podcast where you can just sit down and talk to just really cool people. You know, on, to some extent, I feel like I know how Mark Marin feels, except for he talks to like way like crazy guests. You know, I could, I'm I'm clearly not there, but it, to some small extent, I feel very good about it. It's very fun being able to have these these fun, simple conversations with people where we're just human beings. You know. Um, but anyways, that was Jeff Rota. Please go check out 18 to Party. It is everywhere right now, uh, virtually. So Amazon, all the places, uh, uh, iTunes, all those. Wherever you get your movies, um, please go check it out. It's really cool. Now, as promised at the beginning, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the movie marathon that we have coming up. Uh, so next week, my buddy Jake Bottolieri, a guy I went to school with, uh, now he graduated from uh, the American Film Institute, AFI, and now he is a screenwriter uh, living the feast and famine life in L.A., and he is, uh, he's my buddy. I'll tell you more about him next week, but the point is, he's going to be doing this Cassavetes Marathon with me, and next week we are going to be covering his movies Faces and Husbands. That's Faces from 1968 and Husbands from 1970. Both of those Cassavetes movies. If you get a chance, please go check them out. Uh, you can find them, you know, just search Google, you know, streaming husbands. Well, actually, that might get you something else possibly or something you don't want either way. Um, but anyways, put Cassavetes faces streaming or something. You know, you'll find it. Amazon, iTunes, all those places probably have it too. Um, so please definitely go check that out. Um, but yeah, we're doing 1968 faces and we're doing 1970 Husbands, both John Cassavetti's movies, because we want to celebrate uh, John Cassavetti's birthday. But instead of doing what we did with Martin Scorsese, I also wanted to kickstart all of these uh, movie marathons. And the first person we're doing is one of my all-time favorites. So I hope you guys enjoy John Cassavetti's. Again, talk about someone who gets at the heart of what it means to be human and, quite frankly, what it means to be an alcoholic and, and sad. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's really good at those sort of uh, those sorts of movies. But anyways, we're gonna have a great time talking about them next week. So please join us. But until then, thank you for being here. Good night, good luck, and take it easy. <laughs>